We're going to resume our study here in the book of Acts, so follow along with me as we will open your device or your Bible here to Acts chapter 21. In a moment, we'll pick up right where we left off last week as we wrapped up chapter 20. The year was 1521, and the great Bible teacher Martin Luther was under assault by the Catholic Church. He had uncovered all sorts of heresy or false teachings within that church, and he had proclaimed the central message of the church, justification by faith alone. That just means that we are, we are made right with God despite being our sin and His holiness by having faith, and faith alone in Jesus' death and resurrection. And so now the the authorities of the Catholic Church were trying to get him to a village called Worms. And if they could get him there, there was a threat for his life, or at least he would be imprisoned. And Martin Luther's friends had said to him, hey, whatever you do, don't go to Worms. Because if you do, it could cost you your life. You know what happened to John Huss, don't you? He was burned for his faith. He died. And Martin Luther's response to that was, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. He looked his friends in the eye, and in writing to one of them, he says, I shall go to worms, though there are are as many devils as tiles on the roofs. And so he goes there, And there is this large room where there's all of these authorities of the Catholic Church. And beside him is a pile of his writings. And they ask him, will you recant? Will you say, I don't believe this stuff? And he said in a moment of fear, I need some more time to think and pray about this. And so they gave him another night. And when he came to the same crowd the next day, He said these now famous words, Unless I am convicted by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And with that, he stood for the truth of the gospel. And that gospel message would spread. In our passage of Scripture today, we're going to be reading about another man who people warned him, don't go to that city. If you go to that city, it may cost you your life. We're going to see that in an act of courage, he counts the cost and goes to the city anyway. And while we'll cover the first 36 verses of Acts 21 today, there is this overarching theme, I think, that we are called to a courageous life. I'm going to give you point number one, even before we start in Acts 21. This is the point. Courage is to know the will of God and do it despite fear. Courage is to know the will of God and to do it despite fear. You remember John Wayne? He said something like this. He said, 
Courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. It's knowing what God wants me to do. And by God's grace, I'm going to do it. And and we see God's will for Paul. The Lord is leading Paul to go to Jerusalem despite the danger that awaits. We read about this in chapter 19, verse 21, that Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And then last week in Acts 20, verses 22 and 23, he said, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies me every city that imprisonment and inflictions await me. I don't know what's going to happen when I get to Jerusalem, but there's a good chance I'm going to be arrested and I'm going to experience some afflictions. Now, let's begin to read uh, Acts 21, beginning in verse 1. Hopefully you've located it here. And it says, And when he had parted from there and set sail. Now, now where was he? According to the last chapter, he was in Ephesus. Do you remember he was visiting with the elders of the church there in Ephesus? And there was an emotional moment. He had spent three years there. And it was like there was a tearing apart as he was leaving. We came by straight course to cause. And the next day to Rhodes. And from there to Patara. These are three little towns that he would have made day trips to along the coast where they would travel during the day and then would have docked or anchored their boat at night. Verse 2 says, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went abroad and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was unloading its cargo. Verse 4, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. So their journey from boat to boat now takes into this town called Tyre. And you'll see there that there is a church planted there. This is now one that Paul planted. It is one that perhaps was part of Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, where the gospel was preached and people were converted and then they went home and perhaps they planted this church. You'll notice here Paul's practice of going into a town. And what does he do? He looks for other Christians. And while this might not be directly the point of these verses, I think there is an illusion here for us to think when we're not here at Highland Crest and we're in another town, it's appropriate for us to find a place of worship to gather with as well. And so he stays there for seven days. And there is a word of warning that comes to him from this place. It says in the last part of verse 4, And through the Spirit... They were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Now, wait a minute. Didn't we just read in Acts 19 and Acts 20 that the Spirit was leading him to Jerusalem? This was the will of God, and that's what he was going to do despite fear? I think what we have here is that there are some Christians within this tire, and the Spirit has given to them wisdom and discernment, and they are saying to him, if you go to Jerusalem, danger awaits you. And then we read the next verse. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. 
And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. Evidently, in these seven days, relationships were being built. And so initially, they may have met with the men, the elders of the church, but now as they are leaving, there are women and there are children that are accompanying them to the edge of the city. And then we read of about an impromptu prayer meeting. The last part of verse 5 says, And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went aboard the ship and they returned home. Often the most memorable and meaningful prayer meetings are those impromptu ones, aren't they? It's times where you've spent some time together, you've built some fellowship, you've built some relationship. And you just say, let's just pray. Let's just thank God for the time that we've had together. Now you're going away. Let me pray for God's blessing over you. It's when you've had a meal with someone and you've just enjoyed the time together. Hey, before you go, can we just thank God for what we had today? We've talked about some things today and I want to pray for you in that. This is what we see here, Paul modeling for us here in Acts chapter 21. Let's continue in verse 7. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Do you remember Philip? Do you remember in Acts chapter 6 when the church was exploding there in Jerusalem? And there was administrative needs that were surfacing. But the apostles wanted to give themselves to the preaching of the word and to praying for the saints. And so they identified seven different men that were full of the Spirit. And it says, would you help us with these tasks? Philip was one of them. We would also read of Philip in Acts chapter 8 where he was the pioneer missionary. He was the first to go out and proclaim the gospel to non-Jews, to Gentiles. And God blessed those efforts. He was also the one to be able to to come up with the Ethiopian eunuch and be able to share the gospel with him and baptize him. We see here in this passage that he is identified as the evangelist. He is the only one who has that title in the book of Acts. This clearly meant that he loved to share the gospel and was effective at doing so. We also see in this next verse that he was a godly dad. It says here in verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now we have heard of Agabus before. In chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, he also offered a prophecy. And this was the prophecy that there would be a great famine on the land. Verse 11 says, And coming to us, Agabus took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So there is an object lesson by this prophet. He takes a belt, likely a lot longer than the one I have, the one that would be wrapped around a first century man's waist. And he takes it, he wraps it around his hands and his feet, 
And he says, this is what's going to happen if this owner of the, this belt goes to Jerusalem. He's going to be bound. And you'll see what the follow-up with that is. Verse 12 says, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. We clearly are reference to the author of Acts, and that is Luke himself. Don't go up there. Let me give you a second point in this overarching theme in our passage about courage, and that is this. Not all agree with acts of courage. God has put this on his heart to go to Jerusalem, but not everyone is in agreement. While Paul valued the counsel of others, he was committed to obeying the will of God. Over 17 years ago, uh, my wife and I got married, and, and I can remember the months leading up to that wedding. There was some tension within our relationship. I was attending seminary at that time, and a seminary that uh, reinforced and emphasized sharing the gospel locally and worldwide missions. God was really challenging my heart. I got to go on a, a mission trip to China, and now I was hearing about an opportunity to go to India. And it seemed like it made perfect good sense to me to go on this mission trip just three weeks after we were married. And I thought to myself, if our relationship and our marriage is going to be built on sharing the gospel, what better way to start than going on this trip together? And I was convinced, and still am, that this is what God wanted of us to start our marriage now, that was not a very popular view among those who cared for us and those who were close to us. And, and I can remember Melly sharing with me that she decided to get away for a day of fasting and praying because I was saying, I believe this is what God's will is. And she's like, I'm not so sure about that. Now, I would never recommend this approach to seeking God's will. But on this particular day, it worked. <laughs> She said, it's the 12th day of the month, and what I'm going to do is start in the first book of the Bible, and I'm going to read that chapter. And if I don't get an answer from God, I'm going to go to the second book of the Bible, and I'm going to read the 12th chapter until I get an answer. So this is what Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 says. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And she took that to me. And you know what? I'm going to have to follow him the rest of my life and his leadership. I'll, I'll follow him in this first big decision. Not all agree with our acts of courage that God is leading us to do. And history is full of examples of this, of men who are trusting God to go on mission. David Livingston, a missionary to the heart of Africa, he said, so powerfully convinced am I that is the will of the Lord that I should go to Africa, I will go no matter who opposes me. William Carey, the father of modern missions, he was preaching to a group of ministers. He says, I'm going to India and make the gospel known there. And an older pastor got up and says, sit down, young man. You are an enthusiast. When God's pleased to convert the heathen in India, he would do it without consulting you or me. Adonai Judson was a Baptist missionary to Burma, a closed country. 
People pleaded with him not to go. But he labored for 38 years, suffering through malaria and unknown miseries that would claim the lives of his first wife, his second wife, as well as seven of his 13 children and numerous colleagues. And as a result, 4,000 Baptist churches in the middle of Buddhist Burma were planted. Over a half a million believers are represented in those congregations. Maybe my favorite is John Patton, who served 10 years faithfully at a church in Glasgow, Scotland. And God was working on his heart to go to the, the island of the New Hebrides, a place that just 20 years prior, two missionaries went to. And they not only killed the missionaries, they ate the missionaries. And, and there, there's Pastor Patton, who's been there for 10 years, and he says, I believe God wants me to go there. And the chair says, listen, we'll increase your salary. Stay. And one of the older men was named Mr. Dixon. And Patton said to him, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. I'm going. And he did. And God used him to bring the gospel to the new Hebridean Islands. Not all agree with the acts of courage. I'll look at the next verse with me, would you? Look with me at verse 13. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember Paul's conversion story? Do you remember how his eyes were temporarily blinded and, and how our Lord, our risen Lord, went and visited Ananias? Do you remember what he said to him in chapter 9, verse 16? He said of Paul, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul has already decided. Number three, courage is the evidence of a resolved life. Paul had already decided, I'm willing to die even before he got to Jerusalem. I'm willing to be arrested. I'm willing to lay my life down. Paul had determined long before arriving in Jerusalem that he would lay his life down for Jesus. Just one other short little missionary story of a guy named James Calvert a young pioneer missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands. En route there, the ship captain says, you will lose your lives and the lives of those with you if you go among those savages. Missionary Calvert calmly replied, we died before we came. You know, I think you can make, under the preaching of God's Word, you can hear a passage like this, and right in the quietness of your air-conditioned seat, be able to say, God, I'm resolved. Whatever you want of my life, I will do it. And then 
God will bring you to places in your life where he will say to you, will you trust me? Will you lead me in doing just that? And you've already resolved that because you decided in advance. I wonder if you've done that or are doing that. So now let's consider the next part of our passage. Verse 15. Oh, maybe verse 14 first. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You know what? We've tried to talk him into not going to Jerusalem. He's going. May God's will be done in his life. 15. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So now he is there in Jerusalem. Verse 18. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. So within this large church, likely a collection of churches, you have the leader of the Jewish Christians, James, the half-brother of our Lord. And then you had the leader of the Gentile Christians, Paul himself. And they greet one another with the leaders there in the Jerusalem church. Verse 19 says, After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So if he only relayed the third missionary journey, he might say something like, we went into Ephesus. This is the town that has that wonderful temple to Arimathea. It's a pagan temple, but people come from all over the world. And we went there and we, we preached the gospel there in the synagogues. Some received, some rejected, they kicked us out. So we went to the hall of Tyrannius and there we could proclaim the gospel and many heard it, many trusted Christ. There was one that heard it, even went to Colossae and planted a church there. It was there in Ephesus also where we saw the gospel advance. And some people actually burned these magic books. It was there where a riot nearly formed because the gospel was advancing there. Oh, and there was a, there's a, this young guy, a preteen. He was one day up in the third story and I, and I was preaching and, and I got a little long and he did a swan dive from the opening of that window and he plummeted to his death. But that's okay because God raised him to life. There we got a chance to go up to Galatia. We got a chance to go up and see those in Berea and Thessalonica and Philippi. We made our way down to Corinth and, and God has worked among those people. What was their response? Verse 20. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And isn't that what you're supposed to do? Here you have the leader of the Jewish Christians, James, celebrating, glorifying God, that God is working even in the non-Jews. But then it says this, And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. You see, they were still Christians that adhered to the law. There were those who honored the festivals. They honored the Sabbath. They still had the diet of, of the Jews laid out in the Old Testament. It says there, verse 21, And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses 
telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. They would say it this way, gossip has surfaced about Paul. Paul, these people believe that you don't think that we should honor the law anymore, that we should honor circumcision anymore. And and they're going to hear that you are here in Jerusalem. So what happens? Verse 23 says, Do therefore what we tell you. Now we have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourselves also live in observance of the law. Now, there was something called in the Old Testament a Nazarite vow. I believe we see it in Numbers chapter 6. And a person who wanted to be separated unto God would say, I'm not going to eat meat, I'm not going to eat wine, and I'm not going to cut my hair for 30 days. I want to be really serious about my relationship with God. And then they would offer sacrifices there in the temple. And here is the strategy by the Christians there in the church of Jerusalem. Paul, there's people out there that don't think that you observe the Old Testament. You see these four guys? Here's what we want you to do. They're going to be a part of this Nazarite vow. You accompany them into the temple. In fact, you do your own little Nazarite vow. You see it there because you've been among Gentiles. And when you show up in the temple, everyone's going to see that you observe the Old Testament. And everyone will know that those are all lies about you. They also say in verse 25, But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Verse 26 says, Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, and the offering presented for each one of them. Now, why would he do this? Was it necessary for Paul to go along with this Nazarite vow? Absolutely not. Well, why did he do it? I think the answer to that is found in another place of the Bible. It's in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19, where he speaks about his method of ministry. He said, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I have become as a Jew in order to win the Jews. And then I'll skip to verse 23 where he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Why would go through this vow? Because if it meant that he could minister and teach and share the gospel with the Jews, He was willing to do it. Let's just close out this next section then. Verse 27 says, When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, likely Ephesus, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him. He had been in Ephesus for three years. It's the festival of Pentecost. People have come. Very likely there's some people from Ephesus there in the temple say, Hey, we know this guy. Verse 28, crying out, Hey, men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. 
Now, if you were to lay beside these allegations with the allegations against Stephen in Acts 6, you would find a lot of similarities. They accused Stephen of being against the people, against the law, and against the temple. And we see all of that there in verse 28. It says, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Although they didn't see him in the temple, they saw another Ephesian, they saw him in the city, and they bring allegations that he was in the temple. Now this might not seem like a big deal, but it certainly was back then. Gentiles would not go into the inner courts of the temple. In fact, in 1935, an inscription was discovered on the temple wall that says, No Gentile shall enter within this partition and barrier surrounding the temple, and whoever is caught shall be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. That's just not something you did. And they're accusing Paul of bringing a Gentile into the temple. Verse 30 says, Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the triune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Next to the temple was the police station. The triune here is one, the Greek word that refers to one that's over a thousand police officers. As it says here in verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. When the tribune came out and arrested them and ordered them to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. By the way, do you see it there? He was bound by two chains. It's a fulfillment of what we just read in verses 10 and 11. The prophecy of Agabus. Verse 34 says, Some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. He ordered them to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him, or, or kill him. I'll give you the fourth point in this message on courage, and that is this. Courage has consequences. Paul very likely knew what awaited him. He knew that he would be arrested. And the book of Acts and Paul's ministries changes at this moment. Up until this point, he had been on the offensive. He'd been a free man going out and sharing the gospel. But from this point forward, he will be on the defensive. If the Lord wills, next week we'll see the first of six defenses that he gives of himself and his ministry. From this point forward, he is a prisoner. And God will use that, though. Paul's arrest would lead to a trip to Rome. And while in jail, he will write the books Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. When we choose courage, there are times where it might cost us comforts. 
It may include pain in our life. That's what we see here in Paul's ministry. Let me just wind this up by a place where we always want to wind up, and that is Christ. You see, Jesus performed the ultimate act of courage. And as we look through this passage, these 36 verses in Acts 21, I don't know about you, but I can't help but see the similarities of the ministry of Jesus. Jesus, too, was determined to go to Jerusalem. In Luke 9, verse 51, it says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew that he would go to Jerusalem to die. Secondly, not all agreed with Jesus' act of courage. Do you remember when he proclaimed in in Matthew chapter 16, it's now time for me to go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised? Peter responded in verse 22, Far be it from you, Lord. This should never happen to you. Thirdly, Jesus was resolved to obey. It's a time where he was praying prior to be arrested and being handed over. And he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in his courageous act had consequences. It offers eternal life. Romans 5.19 says, "For For as by one man's disobedience there were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Because our Lord is courageous, and because of His sovereign act of His death and resurrection allows us to have a relationship with Him, this allows us to be courageous as well. So here's the application. The call to Christ is a call to courage. The call to Christ is a call to courage. Think with me, loved ones. When you became a Christian, what is the first act of obedience that is required of you? Baptism. And this itself is a scary act, is it not? To be able to stand up in front of a whole bunch of people and say, I am now a follower of Jesus. To do that. As I think about my own spiritual life, there's there's always been a next step in an act of courage. It might be, you know, I'm committing to attend a Bible study. And when I'm at that Bible study, I'm actually going to speak up and ask questions because I don't understand. It, it might be by being challenged to hand out a gospel track. That is an act of courage. This is sort of scary for me. I don't know how it's going to go, but I'm going to do it anyway because it's God's will. To offer to pray with someone. To reach out and invite someone to a a church event or a church service. By attending a men's retreat or a women's retreat. Or to serve at the church. Say, there's a place for you. Would you help us here? To teach. To go on a mission trip. That is scary. That is sacrificial. I will tell you, some of the most courageous people I know are homeschool moms. That, that lack the college education of teaching, but say, by the will of God, this is what we've decided to do as a family, and I'm just going to trust that God's going to give the grace here to teach my daughters and to teach my sons. 
to not grow weary in doing good. The act of tithing is, is courageous, isn't it? Giving generously. Ultimately, I think, as this message winds down, I think it leads us to a resolve. God, whatever you want of my life, I'm willing to give it to you. Even if that's discomfort, even if that's change, God, whatever you want of my life, I want it. If that means changing my children, changing my grandchildren, God, you do with it what you want. Have you gotten to that place? Are you in that place? As Miss Jenny comes and plays softly for us on the piano, I want to allow you just to, to reflect on these things for a while. Is there something in your life that God is leading you to do, but you have been resistant because it's this discomfort or it's a challenge to you? May God lead you to do that. Why don't we just take some time now and just reflect on this passage and I'll guide us in a prayer. Father, as we look here at the life of Paul, we see a man that was going to Jerusalem and he knew full well that hardship awaited. There was resolve within him that said, I don't care. I'm committed to obeying you no matter what. God, I pray that you would bring us to that place. So loved one, Perhaps you've prayed that before. Maybe it'd be appropriate for you to do it again this morning. Lord, if there is something in my life that needs to be confronted, sin that needs to be confessed, I want your will in my life. Help me to rid my life of that sin. There's a relationship that is strained. And I need to make a phone call. God, give me the grace to do that even today. You're leading financial area. And I've been holding on to this. And you want me to give to that ministry or that person in need or pay that person back. God, help me to trust you in this. I've been afraid to lead. I've been afraid to pray with my wife. I've been afraid to, to read the scriptures with my family. God, help me today. Help me to do that. I've been afraid to, to step up here in areas within the church. Even though I know there's a need, and Lord, help me to follow through with that. There's a neighbor that you put on my heart to talk to, to reach out to, and I haven't done that. Would you allow me to have an opportunity this week that by your grace, I'll follow you and obey you. I'll have that conversation with my son and my daughter. 
I'll make that right with them. Lord, help me to have the courage and the humility to do that. Father, we pray for your strength today in the days that follow. Help us to think about this, this calling on our life as we follow you, as we follow Jesus' example. Help us to do so courageously. In Jesus' name, amen.